Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. All right. Well, Jens, thank you so much for jumping on my podcast. I've known you for what? When did we first meet? In Chicago? I think so. It's been probably a year and a half or something. Chicago. So it was a year ago in August that we met at Boot Camp and... You've done some really big things, and, and it's been fun watching you take down deals and and um, just, yeah, doing deals and, and investing in real estate. So for our listeners, Jens, how long have you been in real estate or real estate investing? Hey, Sam. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm pretty excited about you know, kind of connecting with you and talking about the common passion here. So yeah, I've been in real estate probably coming up on three and a half, four years now since I started investing, you know, follow the traditional path of working and getting good at job and paying into saving my 401k until one day I realized that's not going to work in the long run. So I discovered real estate investing after that. There you go. Okay, so three, four years and you started as a kind of a passive investor first, right? Is it, am I right? Yeah, it's kind of a mix, right? I bought a couple of smaller property, a couple of fourplexes in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But then also, you know, I started doing, you know, listening to the podcast, you know, reading blogs and stuff. And so I, I felt like, hey, if I'm going to put some of my my own, my money into it, I better also do it on the on the passive side through my, my self-directed IRA just to kind of go, you know, jump both feet in the book you know, just to really get the exposure from actively and passively and see what I liked best and so forth. Right. So I kind of did both at the same time. Awesome. You know, it's funny you say that. I just interviewed a gentleman who specializes in helping people take their you know, self-directed 401ks, IRAs, and invest into real estate and other businesses and, and um, syndications or flipping. And I think that's one of the smartest things you can do, especially if you have a Roth, you know, because then all the money you make is tax-free. But what I wanted to start with is, you know, you've been in real estate for a few years. You're doing really cool projects with some people that I know and respect, and you've taken down a lot of units. You're doing some cool stuff. But take me back, oh, I don't know, to when you are a teenager. You're not from the U.S. You're an immigrant from Denmark, right? That's right. So were you thinking you'd be a syndicator and, and buying millions of dollars of real estate back then? Or what were you thinking about as a teenager? In debt? <laughs> that was the furthest from my mind as it possibly could be, right? I mean, real estate was something you lived in. It was the house you, you know, you, you grew up in or whatever. That was as, as far as real estate went. And even when I started, like, you know, as a young adult looking, looking to find a place to live, you know, I didn't never even thought about who were the people that owned these properties, right? It was just, hey, I need a place to rent. Let me see to find some somewhere where I can I can rent and so forth. You know, I think my first actual investment was we, I couldn't actually find a rental. This is the thing that's crazy, but back then it was so hard to find rentals in in Copenhagen where I, where I lived for a while. So we bought a, me and some friends. We pretty much created a a, a JV of an apartment we bought this old like five or six bedroom apartment building like the 1800 and we each you know put put like it was like two grand down or whatever it was and we you know we basically did a jv got a mortgage and came up with a down payment and we we owned that uh we owned that apartment and actually, once i moved we, i sold my share to somebody else who then took over and, and and so forth so coming to think of that that was my first real estate investing i guess i did so that's awesome so you guys did a joint venture how old were you then when you did your first joint venture without even knowing it <laughs> i would even know what it was right it was uh i was in my early 20s i had just moved i grew up in the countryside you know middle of nowhere and that was my i got a job in the big city of copenhagen and i moved there and you know saved a little bit of money and that was yeah i think 21 22 something like that is, is my the age i have and I wish I still had that apartment because they've gone through and modernized that part of the city. So that thing is probably worth 20 times what it was 20 oh. years ago, you know? <laughs> wow. 
you know, I'm curious. I don't get a lot of people that um, are immigrants on the show. Tell me about growing up in Denmark, you know, as a kid and, and outside of Copenhagen in the, you know, I guess, is it farmland or, or kind of tell me about that? Yeah, I grew up in the farmland, in, in the countryside, literally on a small old, it used to be a farm and my parents didn't, didn't farm. They had a big garden and we grew, it's a funny story, we grew all the potatoes, Denmark and, you know, along with some of the other northern countries, eat a lot of potatoes. We grew, have a big garden, so we grew all the potatoes that we ate for the whole year for a family of four. We grew them in our own garden. We wow. pretty much had potatoes. I'd swear every single day. <laughs> it was a treat if we could have pasta or something like that growing up. It was potatoes, um, boiled potatoes every day. <laughs> well, I'm from Idaho, and that's all people oh, know. that's about right. Potatoes, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But we never grew any. We just had all the farmers around us where we bought, you know, sweet potatoes, yams, any type of, type of potato you can think of we, we got. So. Absolutely. You grew up as a not really a farmer, but growing your own food at the garden with your family. And what did your parents do? Yeah, my mom was actually, she was a, um, a lab technician at a local dairy because another thing Denmark is famous for is, is, is milk or dairy production, right? So she was a lab technician, make sure the, the milk was safe. And my dad, he, he, he was a truck driver. He actually delivered milk to, to, to various, well, he used Early on, he was picking up milk from the dairy farms and delivered to the dairy. Later on, he was delivering the final product out to the stores and stuff like that. So, and I actually, as a teenager, I worked in the dairy too. So that was like where everybody went to work in the small town I was in, right? Luckily, I I had bigger plans and bigger ideas. So I didn't get stuck there for the rest of my life. But that dairy is still in full production. So that's cool. So so milk and potatoes was what you had growing up, basically. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny. We have a similar, you know, I grew up in Utah until I was about nine or 10 and then, or I guess till I was 11 and then Boise, Idaho. And Boise, I think our total population is a couple hundred thousand. So it's small town compared to a lot of people in the U.S. But I was on the outskirts. So we had cornfields and potato fields, onion fields all over the place. And and one thing I didn't want to do either is get stuck in, in Meridian and or Boise, Idaho and and that's uh, so an interesting, interesting, uh, similar childhood growing up next to farms. Yeah. Tell me what took you out of, of that and, and sounds like you got in the tech industry or, or where'd you go from there? Yeah. So, you know, when I moved to Copenhagen, I got in, got my first job. Actually, it was in the telecommunication industry. This was in the early 90s. So it's you know, 26, seven years ago. So it was a while ago. And I was in telecommunication and um, I was working for the Danish telco then that was before competition was really open and I actually was working with some guys out of uh, the UK out of uh, London England who who at one point in line I remember 1994 they offered me a job to come to London England to work for them in they were doing some implementation of some hardware and software and they're like hey you got the right skills do you want to come to the UK and work with us like yeah what can possibly go wrong? <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, at 23 years old, I moved to London, England, and my English was serviceable, but not that great, right? So it was a bit of a culture shock to come from a million, Copenhagen, a million people, and, and London was like 8 million people. But hey, I was young, and that was all kinds of fun to, to, to live there for a while. There you go. <laughs> cool. And you had to learn English. That's neat. I had, you know, had English in school for probably 10 years, but if you don't speak it every day, you gotta, it takes a little time to, to, to get very fluent in it. Right? Yeah. Well, same with me. I, you know, I took Spanish in high school and my church, I, you know, I did a two year mission for my church and they sent me to Peru. And so you go to nine weeks of Spanish intense all day long Spanish classes. And then they shipped me out to Peru and, and I had to, you know, teach Christianity from the Bible in Spanish, and I, I so I, I had the reverse. I don't know how it was for you learning English, but I could speak it very easily. I could read it, but I could not understand what people were saying. I was just like, <laughs> it took me two months until I could start really, and most of my fellow Americans could understand, but they couldn't talk, they couldn't read. So I don't know how it was for you, but I just could not understand what people were saying. It was it was a mix. I mean, because you know the the school English we learned was very different 
than the English you speak in the pubs in the, in England, right? And just with different accents and everything else, right? Because I'd watched plenty of, you know, movies and TV shows that was that were in English, but just British English is very different. And and if you have an accent too, so it was a mix. It was it took a little while to get up to speed on everything, you know. Got it. So how'd you wind up in the U.S. from the U.K.? So that was the same company. It was really an American company, actually, with its affiliate uh, office in, in London. And in 1996, they were like, you know, we need, they were selling telecommunication equipment all over the world. And they wanted somebody in the headquarters in the U.S. to travel everywhere. So I moved to the U.S. in 1996 and proceeded over the next several years to travel literally like everywhere. I was probably in every European or Western European country. I was, you know, Southeast Asia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Japan, and just doing, that was when, you know, tele, telecommunication was booming. So I just yeah. traveled everywhere, which is a great experience because I always, I got so comfortable being in an uncomfortable place or a different place. Like, hey, you fly somewhere and you're like, okay, I don't know the language. I don't know the city. I don't know, even know where I'm going tomorrow. Well, I always have an address, but just kind of throwing myself out there. And that was a huge kind of growth opportunity for me personally, because I, you know, as I mentioned, growing up in a small town in the middle of nowhere, that to so that experience of traveling the world was just was pretty awesome. So that was, that was a great experience. That's really neat. So, very cool. So you, I mean, you've literally been everywhere. That's, that's cool. man. <laughs> So, so are you still traveling quite a bit, or, or tell me what you're doing now? You know, I travel for for my you know my real estate business, and then for for pleasure. I mean, I was in Italy this year on vacation, met up with my my sister and her family in Italy, and um, so not the international travel is not so much, not. I mean, into Denmark occasionally to see the family there. Sorry. Yeah. So, so you, you're traveling a little bit but for pleasure, but didn't you go mountain biking in the Alps or something, or didn't I, I saw something on Facebook? Yeah, that was the trip to Italy, northern Italy this summer. I brought my mountain bike over there and did some mountain biking and some road riding and stuff. That's kind of my big, uh, that's my big hobby is the cycling. Hence, where I live now is awesome because I live in, in southwestern Colorado right in the mountains here, so I get to do a lot of that. I think I saw a Facebook post last week, you were mountain biking in a blizzard. <laughs> well maybe it was you know we get a little bit of snow here and there so <laughs> i think it may have been a facebook live in a snowstorm yeah that's, <laughs> that's awesome so you gotta have a fun hobby that gets you out and you're very active so that's cool but so you travel a lot less now you you have your day job but tell me where how you split your time you you're doing a ton of real estate investing you help a lot of uh you know limited investors uh get into these deals that you're also doing but tell me how you kind of split your time up Yes, yeah, so I think, you know, yes, I still have a W-2 job. You know, I'm an IT manager and uh, and I do all this real estate stuff. But really what I've found is it's it's around being very disciplined around your time and say, okay, these, you know, plan out every day, right? So I get up at 5 a.m. and I really spend like the first hour every day doing my hour of power, as I call it. You know, an hour, it's like 20 minutes of some strength or, or yoga exercise, 20 minutes of kind of reviewing my goals and do some journaling affirmations and visualization. I'm kind of big into that whole personal development stuff. And then yeah. 20 minutes, uh, either reading something, you know, growth, either business or, or inspirational or something. So really just start the David intention. And then I kind of look at what do I want to achieve today? Right. You know, and then, then I go to work. I'm in the office by seven in the morning. Right. So by the time I'm there, I've already been out of bed for like over two hours and done more than most people probably get accomplished in a day. Right. Um, you know, then I have some flexibility around my job that, you know, breaks and other things. I can make some calls and answer some emails and stuff, you know, but then at lunch, I pretty much go and exercise again because I really, if you, I want a healthy body that supports a healthy mind, right? I don't want to be, I don't want to get to, I see a lot of people like, oh, I don't have time to exercise. Well, you better have time to be sick then because if you don't take care of yourself, that's where you're going to end up. So that really pay, uh, plays a high importance on, on that staying fit. And, that's, huge. That, that's really important. I, I used to get to the gym by 5.30. My buddies I work out with now, I think we're at 6 a.m., but that's huge. I mean, you, you start the day off so much better. If you're healthy, you get your blood flowing. I drink a ton of water in the morning because that helps. 
but yeah, I, I get questions. I have this kid I mentor. He just, he liked the car I drove. He messaged me on Facebook, said, Hey, will you be my mentor? And I was like, okay. <laughs> I don't have time to go to the gym. I'm like, well, what time do you get up? He's like, well, I get up at seven. I'm like, well, I'm usually working by seven and I've already been to the gym and, and I'm, I've spent time making my kid breakfast. And so by the time you're getting up, I've already done quite a bit every day. So he's like, okay. So he's starting to get, try to get up and go to the gym and you know, it, he has weight issues. He's not happy with his body. And, and so I, I think that's huge. It's start of any successful person. And it's funny as I meet these, you know, and you're in my mastermind group with Rod and these other mastermind groups, almost everyone says what you just said. They get up early, they go to the gym and they start with having a really healthy lifestyle because that affects everything else they do. No, absolutely. You know, and I think just, just that healthy, that, you know, if you feel good, if you're, you know, if you have the, the weight you want everything else, then that fuels that, that, that your mind as well. Right. And, and if you see that success, okay, well, it's interesting too. kind of, you know, I've been a, I've been a cyclist and a bike racer for like 20 years. That's my kind of my big hobby. And I, I, I talk a lot about being uncomfortable and I have been so uncomfortable racing my bike, just, being nervous going to the start line, being out there and it's, you know, just suffering because it's so freaking hard, everything else. Right. And it's like, huh, I've been used to being uncomfortable, putting myself in that position because I knew if I did that and, and, and just trained and, and really had that goal, I could be successful in that. Now I'm getting older, so I'm not exactly getting any faster, but I'm like I can apply the same principles to anything else in life. Right. And that's, that's kind of been my driving force to, uh, to, to, to grow my business and, and take action. That's great, man. That, I mean, you have to stay uncomfortable. If you're comfortable, you're not growing. If you're not growing, you're doing the opposite. You're atrophying and, exactly. and uh, it's great, you know, and, and in order to be a good investor, you actually have to get in uncomfortable. You have to spend the time and the effort and look for the deals that other people won't look for and find the value that other people can't find. So I think that's great. So you're, you're you're a manager you have a management position at your w-2 job but you spend a lot of time I and mean, you're going to erie pennsylvania soon to work on a deal there i know i was just with you in florida uh, for a mastermind group i know you're in albuquerque quite a bit um, you're out of durango right that's right yeah so tell me about your real estate what you've got going on there and, and what you feel has helped you be so successful and, and get to so many doors so quickly yeah i mean you know i decided once i Start, you know, once I learned what real estate is all about, once I started getting the right coaching and mentoring and really learning what this is all about, I was like, okay, I am fully committed to this. And I said myself, like, a, it's like a five-year plan to exit my W-2 job, right? But then I want to have my basic, you know, I want to be financially free in the sense that I can, my, my real estate investments will pay for my basic, you know, food and housing and transportation, that sort of stuff, right? So like, okay, here's my goal, right? And my wife, I don't have any kids, so I know that 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 probably helps with the my time. <laughs> uh, I think at the thought of how much money I spend on kids, but yeah. <laughs> that and then time, right? But hey, we yeah. need we need kids to populate the world, right? So that was not in our cards. So so I kind of fully jumped into it. So I you know I bought a few a couple of fourplexes early on because they were inexpensive. It's like oh you know let me learn. And then I, and I've actually just sold one of them last month and I'm on a contract to sell the other one because I realized I don't like those small properties anymore. Can you just repeat what you just said? I don't, uh, don't oh. like the small properties. <laughs> okay, let's touch on this for a second because they're not bad investments. There's just so much more better investments you can do. And that's, I've sold fourplexes. I, I sold over a hundred properties last year and most of those were fourplexes. Sold a, and this year I sold a ton of fourplexes, townhomes. They're a great place to start and to learn exactly what you just said. You learned a lot. And now you're selling them because you realize there's, you know, the grass is greener and it truly is greener on the large multifamily side. So tell me a little bit more about what you learned from owning those fourplexes and why you're going bigger rather than buying more fourplexes. So a couple of things, right? So the area I bought them in was not the greatest. You know, everything looked good on paper, which is, which is a little bit of a risk, right? You know, these, these kind of, you know, C minus, whatever. 
they look good on paper. It's like, oh, they're cheap. You get good rent. What you don't quite realize is your tenants are can be a little bit harder to manage. I always have a management company because they're out of state. But they're just, you know, anytime a small bump in the road is there, they can't pay rent. Yep. And then, you know, they go through the whole, you know, if they never can pay rent, they go through the eviction, eviction process, you know, a couple of months of rent plus the, the court fees. Well, then basically your profit for the year are probably gone, right? Uh, and that. And just they're more expensive to manage, right? Because the management companies charge you a higher management fee, uh, typically, you know, 10%. You no, know, and, and then all the properties, they just tend to stuff just breaks all the time, right? So if you haven't gone through and really fixed it up and put a lot of money into it, there's just constant issues. Water heater breaks, you know, your, your, your faucets, your toilets, everything. So it's, it's kind of an ongoing, constant expense. So it's really for the headache and the income, I mean, you know, you know, I've definitely made some money on them, but just for the headache. And I was like, my capital is tied up in something that I don't really like that is not really going to grow much in value over time. And maybe, you know, make me 500 or a thousand bucks a month or something. I was like, it's just too many headaches. So I decided to just kind of exit and, uh, you know, and just take that money and, and put it into some larger deals. And so I can, you know, put that money to work where it makes more sense. Absolutely. I, I love what you just said. And, and that's the same experience I've had. I've owned property since 2010. I bought my first investment and I've owned duplexes, fourplexes, triplexes, just sold a triplex and I own townhomes. There's just no economies of scale. So I've made what I feel is great investments and actually I've never made less than 20% total ROI on, on the property. And I think that's pretty darn good. But what you also said is the brain damage or the, the headache. The headache. Yeah. I call it brain damage. <laughs> smaller units because there's no economies of scale. You have to evict people. I had heroin addicts in one of mine and he was beating his girlfriend and I went over there and, and I had to get in the middle of them. And luckily I'm a big intimidating guy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you don't have to mess with that. And, and I have management companies as well. But Basically, I've made great money on my units, just like you. you. You made some good investments, but I realized there's economies of scale where you have 100 or 200 renters. If one of, one of them moves out, all of your expenses are still paid for, right? Yeah. And, and it's just so much easier. You can have an on-site manager that takes care of everything, and you're going to hear about less of the headaches, and you're going to feel less of the move outs and the expenses when you have those economies of scale and and um, not to mention the non-recourse financing so i mean if one of these fourplexes goes under heaven forbid we have some crazy crash again i mean jens neil said your your name's on the dotted line <laughs> exactly. and credit's at risk right with these larger deals we get non-recourse financing and and it's just way less riskier for less headaches and, and more profit. So I'm with you there. Yeah, it's more of a macro view, right? You know, yeah, you may still have evictions, you may still have vacancies, but you don't deal with Joe Tennant and his drama. That's the that's the on-site manager's problem, right? And you just kind of look at, okay, how are we doing an overall performance of the property? And think if things are not working well, you, you look at more of a macro level and say, okay, what can we do to improve the overall property versus how can we get Joe Tennant pays rent, right? So, right. so, so it's. Uh, okay, so you're yeah. you're you've sold one and you're under contract to sell your other fourplex. I mean, tell me about your ideal multifamily investment. What what do you like to buy and and what do you look for? Yeah, so you know, just kind of maybe continue the story a little bit. We we then bought a eleven unit by ourselves, which we are heavy rehabbing. Then we bought a thirty eight unit with a couple of JV partners on that. And then we bought another 16 units. So really, I have two strategies that, that I like to do. I like to buy kind of that 15 to 20 unit, or maybe bigger, that I can own myself, myself being me and my spouse. If we can own it outright, we don't have to answer to any investors. We don't have to sell it in five or six or seven years. And we can just keep it for like long-term cash flow. And if it's in a, in a location that makes sense, right? So that's kind of one of my strategies. But obviously... You know, you run out of money, right? Because you, you, your capital is tied up. Maybe after a while, you can refinance and pull it out. Right. So, so that's my idea. I, I like that if I can own it myself. You know, maybe as I, as I 
accumulate more capital, I can buy something bigger and own myself. But then in the, you know, my, I think my ideal is that really could go there is like a, you know, 150, 200, 250 unit apartment building, which I have been involved in because I just think that economy of scale is there. They're much more predictable in, in, in your cash flow. And you just have, you know, so much better infrastructure to, to, to run them and manage them, you know? So, so that's really the, the, the direction I've been, I've been moving into, you know, in the syndication world and being a co-sponsor on some deals in that. Awesome. I love it. So can you talk about any of those deals that you've done? Yeah, I mean, I've uh, partnered with a few, you know, a few people in a, key, in a couple of key, uh, key markets. So we did one in Atlanta early in the year that we were repositioning a Class B asset that we were repositioning, you know, and uh, went in there and worked on that. And then you mentioned Erie. I have a partner. I'll be in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is kind of a little bit out of most people's kind of a off the radar, if you will, but uh, it's actually a, a, a good. What was that? It's kind of a smaller area you wouldn't think to go to, but your partner is fantastic. I know Jason and awesome, awesome guy to invest with. Yeah, so so that's worked really well because it's you know you get property that decent. Anchor, yeah. Now are servicing that loan, you know, that don't know who you are, don't care. They just see a big uh, delta between what you owe and and what they could sell it for if they kick you out. So. Yeah, have a contingency plan, have some money set aside, buy a property. You talked about stress testing. That's huge. I love that. You know, that's where multifamily is so much more risk adverse. You can buy properties that still cash flow if they're 10% vacant, 15% vacant, 20% vacant, or at least they still cover their own expenses. Right. Try doing that with a single family home. It's not possible or a duplex. That's not possible. You get one vacancy and you're in trouble. Yeah. Well, so, so tell me about this. I I had a really good question from my business partner. He he said, Sam, does your wife support you investing? And and I think it sounds, I know your wife does, but tell me a little bit more about that dynamic. And yeah, I don't, I think not only does she support you, but she sounds pretty excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And I think that it's, relevant for almost everyone that is is listening to this. Yeah. And I, I think that I mean, first of all, my wife, Shonda, she she is fully on board. And she is actually helping in not only the development of growing our business, but also we manage some of our local properties. So she's also helping with that. So she's fully immersed in this and she doesn't have the background. She doesn't have the business background. She went to school to be a, to be a PTA and she loved it. She loved working with kids mm-hmm. and, but she's been a stay at home mom since we've had our kids 12 years ago. And, you know, she doesn't have that background. And I think a lot of people get really scared in investing because they're like, I don't have this background. I don't understand it. And they're nervous to make that jump. So to have her just fully committed to growing this, you know, when I got that offer to sell, you know, she was on board because she saw the potential, you know, I laid it out for her Mm -hmm. and she, I don't know. I'm trying to think how I want to word this. There's been a lot of stuff and projects that we've worked on in the past, like the fix and flips. Mm-hmm. And we didn't work very well together. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's more like the construction type of stuff, but yeah. I mean, sucks anyways. So. Yeah. And it was, and it was a little um, weird to start off and, and kind of like any type of partnership in a business, you know, you got to kind of find your place and, but we really have, jived in this business together. And I get a lot of people that, you know, I have conversations with and they're like, man, I wish my wife was on board or I even so much as I wish my wife helped. And I got some, I got some people I know where their wives are like the opposite. Like they completely don't get it. And it's almost like they're putting up roadblocks and and it's hard, but you can still do it. You can still work around it, you know, And, and maybe it's just something where, it just hasn't clicked in your partner's head as to what's happening mm-hmm. or they maybe, maybe they don't see what's happening 10 years from now by doing this, but that's, that's the goal. You know, this is, this is a slow game. Yeah. You can make some money real quick, but 
if you want to scale it on a level that I want to scale it and I know that you want to scale it on, you know, this is this is a, a game over years, decades. Right. So maybe they just don't understand what that is. But I know my wife, she's definitely on board and we're both seeing the the fruits of all of our hard work. That's awesome, man. That's that's really good to hear. And and I knew that was the answer. Otherwise I wouldn't have asked it because that would be awkward. <laughs> that was a layup. <laughs> have you have you vent about your wife on the podcast? That would have been bad. But well, no, you didn't, Shonda, answer, you didn't answer how your wife is. She's is she awesome. Not? Yeah. No, I mean, she grew up with a lot of money. So okay. I didn't. And let's see, we were in college and I was selling door to door during the summer to put both of us through college. We got a small inheritance from her grandma and her parents naturally with coming from money. They said, Oh, you need to go buy a nice house with that money. And being independent and thinking for myself wasn't very popular with her family, but I, I went and bought that first flip and we moved into it and Lauren was all in and she was excited and we were, we made a ton of money. I mean, we made 70,000 on, on that first flip for us college students. That was huge. Her family definitely was not supportive, but (laughs) even, even after the 70,000 profit, well, they were all excited about that. They, well, it was pretty nasty. I mean, it was a good oh. neighborhood. It was pretty dang nasty. You know, okay. dog pee house, cat pee house, gross. But once we got it fixed up, they said, oh, you need to stay here forever. And this is a great house. And then I moved, promptly moved us to a, a C location, maybe D, pretty bad area, into a duplex that we house hacked. And I remember them coming over for my birthday party. I invited everyone over. And it was just like horror. like them realizing where their daughter and and now granddaughter were living with me and and they were nice about it you know they weren't nasty they they just didn't think that's a spot where we should have been living and yeah. it wasn't great but guess what we made 45,000 in a year on on that flip and and we lived there for $300 a month because our renters paid our mortgage yeah so Lauren's been amazing it, it she's been stressed at times but she's always seen the vision and and, you know, I, I think you probably saw my photo on Facebook. I posted from that duplex, we moved into another flip and we house hacked that and then turned it into a rental and, and we just cashed a check for a hundred grand. You know, we sold it a couple of years later for a hundred grand and yeah, I saw that, it, you know, so it's been really fun, but <laughs> funny story. We moved in this last flip and well, I call it a flip. She didn't know it was a flip. So she said, you know what? I'm done moving. We, we don't, we're not moving for five or six years at least. And I just smiled and said, Oh, okay. You know, I'd figured why fight about it. I just said, okay. And then I think without telling her, I put money down on a new build about in February said, Hey, we're moving at the end of the year. And she just rolled her eyes. Okay, whatever. (laughs) But that's the worst I get from her. She just, you know, gets frustrated. But on the rental management side, you know, she's a mom with two kids and she's out showing our rentals and helping manage those. And, and it's awesome, you know, so yeah, we get stressed out. We move a lot and she hates having to make new friends all the time, but she really wants to have a fantastic life for the family. And, and she sees the vision. And I have friends, wives who they, they're pushing them to buy million dollar homes on a $150,000, $200,000 a year income. And and they have no investments, no savings, but that's what they want. They really, really yeah. want, you know, and we could have gone out and built a million dollar house and done that with our friends, but it's not what our goals are. So I'm very lucky to have a supportive wife and someone who is a partner and, and sees the vision just like Shonda and, and you guys are. So that's awesome to hear about you guys. What, what does she think about going big, big multifamily. I mean, is she comfortable with that as well? Because Lauren kind of, she it's kind of intimidating to her. Yeah. I, I mean, it is intimidating. I mean, you're talking about buying $20 million property. And yeah. while a lot of these are even labeled as non-recourse, there still is some recourse, you know, the bad boy clauses. If, yeah. if you aren't acting appropriately to what you should be doing, then, I mean, it can be recourse to the general partnership. So, I I mean, it is scary, but I mean, what investment isn't scary? Right. I mean, would you put, let's say you had a million dollars. Would you go put that in the stock market? That's way scary. Yeah. I I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's an investment. It's, it's, it does come with some risk 
You know, there's, there's no investment out there without risk. So it it is scary, but I think that, you know, I don't want to put words in Shauna's mouth, but I mean, there's really been no hesitation. I mean, she's, she was there with me through the whole process. You know, she's been, she's been seeing the process. She's been seeing the, the fruits of what we've been investing in. And she's also been there during the growth and learning phases as well. You know, we've both been to uh, multiple boot camps of Rod Cleefs and we actually used our very first one in Chicago as our springboard to determine whether we wanted to go full multifamily. We wanted to make sure, Hey, let's find out from some other people, make sure we didn't miss out um, on some kind of secret sauce on how to make this work or. Right. But I mean, she was there. We were there making the decision together, learning together and um, networking together. So yeah, no, she is, she's on board. And I think, the biggest challenge is, you know, I said, you know, she doesn't come from a um, business background. So as you, the bigger you get, the more business like it is, Yeah. You know, the more institutionalized it is. So, I mean, that's probably the biggest thing is just having more confidence in the business side of it as, as it gets bigger and bigger. And I think that's with everyone, even myself, you know, you see those bigger numbers that, you know, you realize you got to take it a little more seriously. Right. Absolutely. Now that's, and I've seen her at the events, you know, and, and that's the thing I, I would say is Rod Cleef is great. I mean, amazing training, amazing group of people like you and, and it's been fun to hang out with people and learn. But when you jump into things, you educate yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't educate yourself indefinitely with which a lot of people do. They don't take action because they just want to get educated. But you take action and educate yourself. And, and I, I know that's what is one of the recipes that has helped me be successful is I'll jump into something, but it's very precise what I'm doing. I'm jumping in because I know it's going to be hard. It's risky, but I also have done the research, ed- educated myself and hung around the people that can help me make the right decisions. And, you know, our mastermind is a great example of that. There's people maybe doing it the wrong way in the mastermind, a lot of people doing it the right way, and a lot of people willing to share what it takes and different things they've learned. And and that's one thing that I love about the mastermind that you and I are in is there's a lot of great people willing to share what not to do and and what to do. So what do you think the next step is for for you and Shonda and and your business? Are you guys taking down a property on your own? Where are you looking or or what is your business plan? I really like... Um, partnering. And it just makes sense because none of us can be good at everything. I, right. I've yet to meet one person that's good at everything. Yep. So you have they to say re- they are, be, be careful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But you really have to realize what your weaknesses are and figure out how to fill those. Whether that's, uh, if you don't want to partner, you have to figure out how to hire that done and really, you know, use that to the, to the maximum. But I find that I'm trying to think what the saying is. If if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah. Right. And, and that's really the, the motto in my head when it comes to moving forward. And that's partnering with people that not only have maybe more experience than me, but fill in my weaknesses and, so far it's worked out really well for me and that's where that's where we're moving forward as as far as partnering i'm putting to um putting together a lot of informative stuff for for my investors as well kind of what you're doing with this podcast yeah. and what i want to help them with is that even if they don't invest with me be cautious you right. know realize how to analyze deals or maybe it's even just realize what other options you have out there because I, I mean, I know people that are really into stocks and mm-hmm. some people are good at it. <laughs> I've not had a legit conversation with someone that has been good at it for a long time. You know, I've, sure. I've known people that have really had good runs mm-hmm. and I, and I, I know that when I was in stocks, I would have a good run for a couple of years mm-hmm. and within about four to six months, that run would be completely wiped away and I'd be oh. starting back, you know, from what I put into it. And right. 
I think that's the majority of what people encounter with that. So I'm kind of getting off topic here, but yeah, I, I mean, similar to what you're doing with this podcast, recession proof is that, you know, we're at this point, this, this tipping point, And what I feel is that I want people to be prepared mm-hmm. because I know when people are prepared, they can make better decisions, not only now, but when something bad happens. Yeah, no, that's huge. So strategic partnerships are really what you're working on now. It sounds like, yeah. And we're doing the same thing. So when I started this business, you know, actually when I got out of building fourplexes last year and, and I just said, Hey, what's the best thing for my clients? You know, what's the best thing for my investors? If a recession comes, I don't want them to be buying single family duplexes, fourplexes as much as I'd rather them buy multifamily if they can. Now I, I, I buy townhomes. I'm buying two more townhomes right now with a partner, but we're very, very conservative in our purchases. So I said, Hey, let me put together a team, you know? So I invited my friend Lyndon to, to be on this team and he doesn't have a massive background in real estate. He's a business owner, kind of like you, very successful, very smart. He's a CPA as well. And I said, I want someone that is a little bit more nerdy than I'm pretty nerdy. I, I like looking at spreadsheets, <laughs> but he's really good at looking at spreadsheets and underwriting, running the numbers on deals. And so that was a strength that he really brought to our partnership that was way better. He's way better at me at, at spreadsheets. And, and when you're evaluating a 60 door facility, you've got to be able to run the numbers and make sure you don't miss something because at the end of the day, it's all about the numbers and, and mm-hmm. what you can do with those numbers. You know, if you put $5,000 a door per door into the complex, what does that equal in a rent bump? And what does that equal for your investors? You know, the other strategic partner we've made is is the money guy, the guy that has 30 years investing experience. He brings a balance sheet to the table. You met him at the mastermind group. He's a fantastic individual. And and by the way, work with people that you like and that are fun to be around because yes, I'm done with people that, that aren't team players. And he's a team player. He, he has a lot of money to spend on real estate, which is great, but he's ultra conservative. So he's seen three or four crashes in the market. He's twice my age. I hope he doesn't hear this and hear me say that. <laughs> but but a really great guy. He he's conservative because he's seen the ups and downs in the market. So we have we have this powerhouse team I feel of underwriting, investor relations, which is me, scouting the deals, which is me, and then a very experienced conservative money guy. And and now we've found in a property manager with fifty six hundred doors under management who's extremely conservative as well and aggressive with his property management, who holds his, his regionals and his property managers to a very high level of professionalism. And, and I, I think that's really important. And I love sharing information with you and with the other people in our mastermind. So you don't have to be on a team with people, but just sitting in the same room four times a year, talking on a podcast with you, I, I see huge value there. And I'm kind of curious, do you have any mistakes you'd like to share with our investors that maybe if you had the right partnership or right experience, you maybe wouldn't have made that mistake? Yeah. So you don't have to. I mean, it could be someone else. You can make it up about your friend George or something. No, I won't even make this up. You know, I'm I'm gonna be real with you. I think I think we all make mistakes and people that are that are new to investing in real estate may make the same mistake and it falls right in line with partnership, but I actually went into a partnership and trusted somebody very early when I, when I started, mm-hmm. you know, started to do buy and hold investing and I didn't do proper due diligence on this partner and it ended up really burning me on some projects. I know one of them that I lost 90 grand on, oh. I mean, you don't want to lose $90,000, but you know what? I, I just realized where I was and I know that I can make it in a different project and I don't have to make it in that same project. So it's really, even though you may find the person that fills your gap, like you said, it needs to be somebody that you jive with. Yeah. Somebody that you enjoy working with because I mean, we only get so many days on earth. Yeah. So, you know, really feeling that you can trust that person and grow with them and, that they have your back just as much as you have their back. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's very important. So 
many people starting out will trust people, but not verify it. Yep. And that's one of the biggest things that I can say, especially when you're trying to scale and partner and grow bigger. And this may not even be something that you're partnering with. Some people will spend less time really researching a potential partner than they would an employee. They'd spend way more time with an employee, but <laughs> yeah. going to a partnership and just be like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think they're good. Yeah. So even though I was very cautious with this partner, it still was to the point where I should have researched more, not only in um, done my own research instead of trusting his, but I should have researched him as well. So I think that that, that could be a big key for some people, um, whether you're active or passive, you know, really research who you're doing business with because um, that is important. No, that's huge. And the saying for businesses is be slow to hire and fast to fire. Mm-hmm. Same thing goes with partners. And, you know, I was approached by a, a number of groups to, to help them raise money and work partner on their deals. And a couple of groups didn't ask me about my background. They didn't ask me what I was doing for money. They didn't ask me for re- references, referral, I mean, anything. And then I asked them and, and they kind of just didn't get why. And, and I said, you know, if, if you don't care who you jump in the business with, that's a huge red flag for me. Yeah. And um, I've got a group, they keep hitting me up to, to partner on deals. And I said, hey, I'm still waiting for those references. You know, I think you're good guys, but send me a list of your investors that have worked with you and send me a list of your partners that you've worked with. And um, am I going to Google your name and find someone you worked with that says you're a crook? You know, I, I hope not, but it's huge. And, and the other thing I realized really quickly with the last group I was with is if it's all about the money, it's going to get old fast. And that's a bad partnership. And it be, and with those guys, it was all about the money, how much I was making, even though they were making so much more than me, I was adding a ton of value. I thought, and I didn't think the money should come up yet. They always wanted to know how much I was making and see if they could pay me less. And even though they were making killing. And so if you have partners that are so worried about how much they're making versus how much you're making, it needs to be fair. You know, there needs to be something in writing. But, you know, my, my business partner, Lyndon and I, and, and then Michael, we haven't even discussed what, what we're all making. We've discussed how do we do a deal and, and make a ton of money and help each other become successful and, and financially free. That's the main topic. And that's how it is with my investors, my clients, is that I'm not really worried about the fees I'm making. The money will take care of itself. But how can we add value to each other and just have a really good relationship that's mutually mutually beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. If we're going far together, that stuff doesn't matter right now. And and I've been having quite a few conversations lately about scarcity and abundance mindset. And I think that falls right in line with it. I think the people that are worried about all those small details and how much you're making, how much they're making, I, I think that's the scarcity mindset. Yep. So having that abundance mindset, it's like, Hey, you know, I think you're doing a great job. I feel like I'm doing a good job. It seems like you think I'm doing a good job. Let's go far together. And how do we go far together? And it's yeah. not about, you know, oh, wait, you got $10 and I only got five. It, it, I mean, that's not, that's not how it works. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, money is important, you know, making sure that everything is fair, but in reality, it's everything else that comes along with it. Yeah. That's huge. That's absolutely important. Well, it sounds like that was a, an expensive lesson for you. 90 grand Hertz. <laughs> well, I will say I wanted to ask you though, can Shonda laugh about it? Did she say, I told you so. She- and that was, it was a very contentious purchase. Even from the beginning, I, it was going to be one of those D class properties to, to bring around that, like kind of what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I think now we can laugh about it. It was a very rough time. That was a long journey we went on. I kept every decision I made. I felt like I was making the right decision, uh-huh. but it, it just kept going and, and, you know, problem after problem after problem, even after, even though I was making the right decision, you know, financially and investment wise, it just, it just could never, you know, it's kind of like you see those funny videos where someone, the top of their body's going faster than their feet and they, just, their feet can't catch up with their body. I mean, that's right. kind of what's, you know, my feet could not catch up with, with this property. So I will say the advantages to real estate, I was able to take 
so much of that losses against my other income. Uh-huh. And I actually calculated out, I only lost about 20 grand when it comes all right. to all the benefits of, you know, depreciation and the expense, the taxes that I wouldn't pay on my other profit. So, I mean, 20 grand isn't all that bad. It's better than 90. It's a lot better than 90. <laughs> well, that's the way I'd swing it to your wife, you know, next, next time she brings it up. Yeah. And, th- and that was our decision. I mean, that's what it came down to is like, you know, when we realized, hey, we just can't catch up to this and we couldn't find the right people to help us catch up to that. It was just, it was just kind of a realization of, okay, this is in reality, this is really what we would lose. Mm-hmm. It's not that much. Let's make up that $20,000 in the next deal. And, you know, I, I look yeah. at, I spent time on another deal where I made almost 300 grand in a year. Nice. And I mean, on a 10 plex. So, I mean, you, you just look at that. I mean, 20 grand was nothing compared to what I've made on the other properties. So, well, and, and the money you'll make by partnering with the right people and the lessons you've learned. So I absolutely never want to lose money, but sometimes that's the education you pay for. Yeah. Well, Adam, we're about out of time and, and I've got to run to my next appointment. I'm sure you've got to get okay. back to working with investors and laying your patio. Yeah, right. How can our listeners reach out to you? What do you have going on that they can click on, go to email you? What's the best way to reach, reach you and find out what you're doing? Yeah, so my company is Welkin Equity. That's W-E-L-K-I-N. So WelkinEquity.com, you can hit me up there. Or I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, I try to spend a good amount of time on all those. I don't, I don't spend too much time on Instagram, but, you know, reach out to me. Maybe you want to get on my email list. I send out emails about, you know, what I'm up to. And uh, yeah, I have a couple deals possibly in the work, which is great. So I'm really looking forward to those, but you know how the hot market goes. So we'll see. (laughs) And, and tell everyone where you're from and, and where you're looking to do business as far as multifamily goes. Absolutely. So I am in Northeast Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana. You probably don't have many Fort Wayne, Indiana investors or investors on your podcast. Nope. I will invest in pretty much the Midwest or some very hot markets that are have been proven to be recession proof or recession resistant. I'm kind of staying away 